Good morning. Welcome on this uh, soggy Sunday morning. Uh, special greetings to those joining us at, um, at the Owan upstairs at the Crossroads campus and at Highland Park. So I have been thinking about relationships a lot lately. It started a couple years ago when I was doing research for the book on the future, and I was uh, just struck by how much had changed in my lifetime. So when I was born, 75% of adults 18 and over in this country were married. Today, it's less than 50% and dropping pretty precipitously. Uh, The birth rate has come down rather dramatically during that time. Uh, Living together in the 60s was was pretty novel. It's up 1,000% since then. So there's just been a lot of changes that sort of got my attention. Uh, I've also been thinking about uh, relationships because... Our son, we have three boys. One of our sons is getting married right here in less than a month. And so the father of the groom doesn't actually do much. I don't even write a very big check. Uh, No one's consulting me, but I'm thinking about it. So that has uh, prompted some reflection. And then also there's this series. So uh, I have been digging back into biblical texts and I have been reading books and blogs and, and uh, holding focus groups and trying to, trying to sort of figure out what's going on out there and how. My, my goal was I wanted to say things that are not commonly being said. There's lots of advice out there about marriages, about, you know, love languages and, and compatibility and, and communication and conflict skills and in-laws and intimacy and finances. I mean, there's, there's just all, there's, a, there's, a, there's an industry out there that gives relationship advice. And I wanted to come at this and, and reflect on Scripture and do so through the grid of someone who's been married for 30 years, someone who's been a pastor for over 30 years. And, um, and perhaps say some things that you're not hearing, whether you're single or married or single again, uh, divorced, uh, living together, married with children, married without, grandparents, blended families. I was looking for some insight that would be helpful uh, to you. So last week I started, I described some of the statistics and changes going on. I said, uh, look, I want to be very clear uh, whatever you might think, uh, Sherry, uh, Sherry's in my marriage is not perfect. We do real life, real issues, real family, right? Our kids are not perfect. They don't think we've been perfect parents. You can ask them. They're around. They'll tell you. Um, so marriage is the graduate school of character development. It's often hard. And I just say, I just didn't want to suggest we've got this nailed. We're talking out of, uh, you know, out of a state of perfection here. And then I said, both being single and being married are viable options, God-ordained options. And then I, I gave seven introductory points. I said, we were created for relationships, but sin has made a mess of things, makes relationships very hard. I said, relationships are profoundly important to us. They shape us. We are seldom better than our friends. Uh, and then I said, marriage is, is a source of a lot of confusion today when people talk about marriage they often are meaning very different things. God has something specific in mind. Uh, I, I went on to say that, uh, that uh, marriage today, I think, is suffering from some unrealistic expectations that people have about soulmates and other things and how that works. And I said, God's counsel is helpful and wise and a little counterintuitive. You've got to lean into it. 
So today, I want to I share two big ideas, two big points. Uh, before I do that, let me make two smaller points. First of all, I got calls from uh, several people this week, uh, women who had been in abusive relationships, asking me to be very clear that abuse is never okay. And so I said, absolutely, I want to be very clear. Abuse is never okay. So I read last week the Ephesians 5 passage, sort of a classic from Paul. It opens by saying we're to submit to one another. And then, um, again, this is, a, this is a passage I think many people misunderstand. Paul actually sets out that we both, husbands and wives, have an opportunity to play the Jesus role. So in his relationship with the Father, Jesus is equal to God the Father. But he, he yielded and he submitted to the Father's will. And so both husbands and wives get called to submit to one another, but there's a special calling on wives, submit to your husbands. That's what Paul says. And then going on in that same passage, Paul then says we are to be like husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for the church. He died for the church. There's a sense in which both husbands and wives get called upon to die to self, to put the needs of the other ahead of their own. It is a very counterintuitive instinct, but there's a specific way in which husbands get called to be the ones to take the lead in dying for your spouse, right? So the challenge with that passage is that it it has some people never look past, uh, they don't understand it, but they never look past this, wives submit to your husband. And there are some who try and abuse that passage. There are men who try and claim, okay, you've got to do what I want to do, completely misunderstanding that passage. And there are women who think I'm supposed to accept that and submit to that. So I just want to be really clear. Uh, no, no, abuse is never okay. One of the reasons we beg and implore you to be in community, to have good friends that love you and love God and know what's going on in your life, is so that they can call foul. (laughs) They can look at something and say, this isn't good. This isn't healthy. This isn't a positive dynamic. So abuse is never okay. Second thing I want to reinforce before we jump in, I want to remind you, God is for you. God loves you. He created you. He created you in his image. He has withheld, Romans 8, he has withheld no good thing from you. He sent his son to die in your place. He's proven that he is in your corner. He's in your camp. So we need to trust his advice. He's God. He sees the beginning from the end. He sees all this. He knows how this is going to play out. And so I I just want to say, right, some of this advice is hard to hear. I I will say things today that are going to make some of you mad. Some of the advice is hard to hear, but God is for you. And I would also just point out that when it comes to relationships, we uh, can do a lot of stupid things, right? There's a, there's a, especially there's a phase in relationships, infatuation, whatever, where people do a lot of really stupid things. And some advice and some guardrails would be helpful. So let me just tell you for a moment about my, Pat, my friend. I grew up middle school, high school with Pat. Everybody's got a friend like Pat. I'm lucky to have survived Pat. Pat was the outdoor, rugged, burly, manly. I think he was shaving in third grade, always issuing the dares like, wonder if I bet you're not man enough to jump off the bridge, right? You know, and, and you know what? If we left right now, 
we could get to Canada and turn around and you'd only be 45 minutes late for work tomorrow morning, right? Pat was forever saying, are you going to try the double gainer off the the rope swing or or are you chicken? You know, that was Pat. Pat was always sort of never had a coat on, you know, hairy chest in, in, in middle school, right? Just burly, masculine, macho Pat. So Pat was a good friend through high school. The summer after high school, we spent a lot of time together. And then we went to separate colleges. And when I came back for Thanksgiving, Pat shows up late one night, uh, knocks on my door with Lisa. And Pat and Lisa are dressed identically. (laughs) White overalls, the same shirt. They have a scarf on, same shoes, a hat, and they didn't have much time, so we didn't talk for very long, but I'm just like, I don't quite, I'm like, I can see it. Like, Pat, oh my goodness, you have no idea. You have taken leave of your senses. You're going to figure this out three months from now and be so embarrassed, but what can I say? Lisa's right there. I've never met her. So we agree we're going to have breakfast the next morning. The next morning, Pat and Lisa show up to breakfast. Apparently, they were never apart. They're wearing identical outfits, again, that are completely different. This time I said something. So, you guys have started dressing alike. Pat informs me that they change their shoelaces every day to match their outfit. And I, I just, I, I'm trying to get Lisa away to say, Pat, I'll block, you run. This is, you, 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 don't, you don't understand what you're doing, Pat. So, um... Pat, the last I heard, Pat and Lisa didn't last very long. The last I heard, Pat is living off the grid. He had a short, failed marriage, and then someone said, he's off the grid. I go, what does that mean? They go, he sort of parked a car and walked into the woods, and he's living off the land. I go, okay, well, that's, that's Pat. And by the way, there's no statute of limitations on this. There's no age barrier. I went down to visit my mom uh, a while back. And uh, so my mom's now a widow, and, 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 and she says, you know what I like to do on Thursday nights? There's a bunch of barges, a bunch of, you know, float boats that, that tie up out in the middle of the lake. And everybody brings a, a dish, and we just have potluck out there. And I said, well, Mom, look, I'm just here to visit you. Whatever you, whatever you want to do, I'm, I got no agenda. So I did not think this through. So out we go <laughs> to tie up all the barges. And I find myself with about eight barges tied up with about 40 to 50 single 70 to 80 year olds who are acting like they're in junior high, right? (laughs) You touched me. No, I didn't. There's the line. Watch me do a cannonball, right? I mean, I'm just looking around like dumbfounded at at how giddy they are. Then they ask me to play tag and I'm, I'm like... I'm thinking it's probably two miles to shore. I'm not sure I can make it. 50-50 odds. I like those odds better than staying on this bark. So taking God's counsel, uh, when we realize we're not always driven by thought and clarity and sometimes hormones and other things kick in, taking God's counsel is in your best interest. God is on record saying a couple things. I want to make two points today. Number one. When it comes to relationships, the emphasis we find in Scripture is not on finding someone, it's on becoming someone. 
So there's all this talk again about finding your soulmate. And there's this promise that if you can find this person, they're going to complete you. They're, they're, you know, it's, life's going to be easy. I, I don't, just to be clear, I don't hear many single people saying, I'm looking for my soulmate, but I hear that kind of assumption. There's somebody that's going to make everything right. And on the one hand, I sort of get the idea that you want to find a good person, right? The, 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 the other person matters, and finding someone to be a great friend or finding a spouse is, is a good thing. I get that. But I hear a lot of hope being invested in how the other person is going to complete them. And in married, married couples, I hear a number of people suggesting that, well, my problem is I married the wrong person. Now, people will say exactly that, but a lot of times the implication is it's this person's fault, right? This person's fault. So I just want to say, fresh set of eyes looking back and looking at all these passages, to some extent, I think what the Bible says is that Our goal, God's counsel, is that we are to become the kind of person the person we're looking for is looking for, right? That that would be the objective. As opposed to finding the right person, we're to become the kind of person the person we're looking for is looking for. And in marriage, we're to become the kind of person the person we're married to would find it easy to trust and love and respect. 30 years ago, 35 years ago, I was in a library about three miles from here. I was, I was, it was a Sunday, I was trying to figure out whether or not I had permission, it's the way it felt to me at the time, whether I had permission to ask Sherry to marry me. So I, I wanted to do it. My dad was clear that if I had three working brain cells, I would, I would ask her to marry me before she got to know me better. Uh, <laughs> I was driving, it was 20 hours to see her, 20 hours one way down to see her in Statesboro, Georgia. Pretty much any time I had 48 hours free, I was driving 40 to see her for eight hours. I realized it's unsustainable, I had to do something. And uh, I had been spending Sundays over the course of some months fasting and praying, looking for wisdom. And on that Sunday afternoon, I I said, you know what? I'm going to look in this book. I'm a graduate student studying this book. I'm going to look to God for advice on whether or not I can get married and whether or not this is a good idea. And I found that exercise really frustrating. I mean, Adam and Eve, there's no choice there. Uh, Abraham and Sarah to show up together. Uh, Abraham sends a, um, a servant off to get the wife for Isaac, uh, David and Solomon seem to be case studies on how not to pick someone to marry. Jesus and Paul are single. We got almost nothing about the fact that Peter is married. I mean, I went through here. There was no counsel. And, and for that matter, when you look at the rest of Scripture, or when you look at the rest of sort of Christian literature, when you look at the writings of the early church fathers or the reformers and others, and you, you don't hear anything about how to know whether you're ready to get married or how to, how to find 29 dimensions of compatibility or how to check your love languages or any of this stuff. None of it is in there. And, uh, and so I was a little frustrated by that. Now, in hindsight, I look back and I say, well, that's because when you go to Scripture trying to figure out who I am to, to, to marry, right? what you get 
is almost nothing except counsel about what love looks like and how to become the kind of person who can make that commitment. Now, let me just call a time out here because I'm, I'm suggesting that single or married, whatever, whatever your status here, that everybody figures out how to raise their game. So I want to be really clear, that's not the gospel. Right? The gospel is not this I do. I'm going to get better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be more religious. I'm going to do these things so that I will be a better person or so that God will love me or so that God will answer all my prayers, right? It's not the way this works. Christianity is not this I do, it's this he did. God so loved the world that he gave his son, right? We don't reach up. He has come down. And so I want to be really clear uh, about the offer that God makes. His, he's the hero. It's his love, not the fact that we're lovable, that works. That said, we're not expected to stay where we are. We are expected to partner with God, to yield our lives increasingly to the Spirit of God, to the end that we become the kind of person, the person that we're looking for, the person that we're married to, is looking for. Let me read to you uh, out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a passage that is uh, cited in so many weddings. You would think that Paul was writing to his fiancée. He's not. He's just describing and defining love. And he says, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It's not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let me just ask you this question. How might your relationships change? Your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with friends, colleagues. How might they change if you were more patient and kind? If you were not jealous or boastful, not arrogant, if you didn't insist on your way? (laughs) The first point I want to make is that when it comes to relationships, right, what God says is don't try and find the perfect friend. Don't try and find someone, right? The goal is to become that person, to to become more like Christ. That's the way forward. Point number two. We, uh, we need to understand marriage as being bigger than we currently do. Now, last week I said um, that part of what I was trying to do was to, was to bring marriage more in line with reasonable expectations because people have this expectation that I'm going to find my soulmate and everything's going to be perfect in life. And so I was trying to downsize marriage. I, I want to do in one sense just the exact opposite. Uh, I want to suggest that, that marriage as God has has developed it and defined it, is bigger and more mystical and, and profound than we understand it to be today. So when you, when you look at the Bible, you, you discover, right, that it opens with a marriage. Page two, Adam and Eve. And, and it's through their union that, that the, the, the hope of the world is going to come. And then when you get into the middle of the Bible, you, you see that Jesus is defining, describing his relationship with his followers as a marriage. And then at the end of the Bible, it ends with a marriage celebration in heaven. 
And we, we realize at that point that, that when we take communion, it's not just that we're looking back to the Last Supper, to the Passover, and how Jesus is the, is the Lamb of God who sort of fulfills all the sacrificial foreshadowing, but that communion is also, it, it is a precursor to the wedding feast in heaven, with the, the union of Christ and his followers. So marriage is a big idea. It's a big theme that gets developed throughout Scripture. It's an important concept. And, and there is a mystical two lives becoming one uh, that, that is, it is hard for us to fully grasp and unpack. It's not good math. It's, it's a little confusing. But I want to suggest, and this is where I'm going to make you mad, I want to suggest that there's at least two things. There's more, but at least two things that we're doing today that are undermining marriage. The first is sex outside of marriage. So last week I said God is not a prude. He is pro-sex. His idea, right? He invented it. God, God is pro-sex. But when you look at what the Bible has to say about sex, you see that it is both celebrated and warned against. That, 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 that sex is understood to be sort of a fragile fire. Right? It's fragile because it can be abused and broken. It is fire in that it can be a great blessing and, you know, cook food and warm the house, but it can also destroy. So I realize I sound like a, you know, crazy religious nutcase right now in this culture saying this, but here's the facts to the extent that they're helpful, right? Here's what, here's what social scientists will, will tell you if you dig and you look at the data. The couples, the people, excuse me, the people who describe the most sex and the most sexual satisfaction, okay? So the people having the most and the best sex are people who were married as virgins, Generally, the, the sooner sex is introduced into a relationship, the less stable that relationship becomes. The earlier it is introduced, the more likely that relationship will not last. And, and, uh, and it, is, uh, it is something that, uh, that causes lots of pain when a relationship that is centered around sex comes undone. So... Um, it's also worth noting that in this crazy, sexually supercharged culture in which we live, people are having less sex than ever before. Right? It's, 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 it's fragile. It's a little bit complicated. I have suggested in the past that sex is like scotch tape. It works best when you put it down once. If you peel it up and put it down on another sheet of paper, there's stick there. But not as much. And if you peel it up and you put it down somewhere else, and you peel it up and you put it down somewhere else, and you peel it up and keep putting it down different places, it has less, it has less stick to it. Sex is designed by God in the context of marriage to be a unifying glue-like force. Ten years ago, I was surprised, no longer, ten years ago, I was surprised as I would talk with young couples, and by young I mean anybody younger than me, but in this case, I mean, in their 40s, who were not, you know, as we're talking about what's going right and what's going wrong, and I would ask, you know, how is intimacy going? I would hear, well, that's not 
it's not really part of the equation anymore. It's too complicated. And I just generally, over time, hearing that and reading about that, and I did, just came to understand, okay, so sex is fragile. So God's counsel to us is not because he's anti-sex, but because he's pro-sex. And, and when we take sex out of the context for which God designed it, we have problems. Second way we have undermined marriage is by living together. Now, again, I know everybody is doing it. In fact, 25% of women in their 20s are living with somebody right now. It's the, the data I've got is all about women. Uh, 50% of women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s have lived with someone. Uh, so it's up 1,000% since the 60s. And when I talk with couples that are living together, I occasionally hear, not very much anymore, this used to be bigger 20 years ago, I occasionally hear, well, marriage is just a piece of paper. We don't need a piece of paper to justify or to signify our love. Our love is purer for not having the piece of paper. I don't hear that very much anymore. It's not a very strong argument, but I don't hear it very much anymore. What I hear today, almost always, is, well, your generation or our parents or somebody made a mess of marriage. And I don't want to make a mess of marriage. And so I want to be sure. We're going to be sure before we get married, that this is going to last. Which I, 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 I applaud the value being established with marriage. Here's the challenge. It just, it doesn't work. And again, I can, I can go to the statistics. When you, when you look at married couples versus couples that are living together, married couples live longer, recover from illness more quickly, have more satisfying sexual lives, earn more money. Furthermore, when you contrast couples who live together before getting married and couples that just get married without living together, you see that, that the couples that get married without living together have happier marriages and are less likely to divorce than those who live together first to see whether or not the marriage is going to work. So there's lots of data on that. But, but I'm not a sociologist. Look, I, I, here's what I would say as a pastor. Here's the problem with living together. It's not the same thing as marriage. Right? You can live together, sleep together, buy a house together. You can raise children together. It's not the same thing as marriage. Because marriage is based on, on this commitment that you are not making by living together. Right? You, are, you are in one sense saying we're not ready to do that. But until you do that... Right then, then it's not like being married. It's like living together and having sex. It's a it's a different thing. So, uh, I, I was uh, several years ago. I was uh, on a high ropes course, and I think we've got an image of this. Um, so, can we pull up that image? So, high ropes course. So, this is shot from underneath, and and you know, at one platform. Uh, you, you climb up this pole, so you're 30 feet up on a telephone pole, and then you step out, and there's two, um, there's two boards. Uh, they were cables in our place. This isn't us, but they were, they were cables. And uh, they started together, and so when you started at one end, you were just standing up, and you, you could hold on to the hands uh, of, of uh, in this case, it was my son, but you could hold on to the hands, and then you started to walk. But as you started to walk and go down towards the other platform, the cables went out until eventually you're leaning forward, right? You're, so you're, you're like this, and you go, okay, 
The only way we go forward now is I have to commit, right? I have to lean into you. And if you don't support me, <laughs> then I'm going to fall. It, that's, a, that's a very different experience than saying, okay, we're sort of together, but I'm basically taking care of myself. I've got this. And, and I just say, those are two different things. And there's a sense in which when you get married, when you take a covenant vow, remember, it's not a contract. When you make a covenant vow, this is a, this is a vow, this is a pledge, marriage is a pledge. A good attorney would not let you make because you're getting rid of all, you're, you're, you're not limiting your liabilities. You're signing up for liabilities. Better or worse, sickness and in health, richer or poor, I'm taking whatever's going to come. When you do that, what you were saying is from this point forward, right, it, it was my feelings that got me here, but from this point forward, it is the commitment that I'm making that are going to guard my feelings. I'm committing. You don't fall in love. You commit to love. I'm committing. I'm committing not that I will feel love for you. I am committing to act in a loving way to you. That's what I can commit to. (laughs) I can't commit that the feelings will always be there, but I can commit that I will act in a loving way towards you. And that commitment changes things in a profound way. And not making that commitment (laughs) is not like being married. And so living together actually teaches us how to be together without being committed. So three years ago, two weeks ago, um, two weeks ago is the third anniversary of my stroke. Three years ago, probably right about now, uh, I was in the neuro ICU unit downtown. And uh, my stroke was, it was a brainstem stroke, so it wasn't, uh, it didn't affect my thinking or my cognitive abilities other than that I was pretty out of it and in a lot of denial. But it was, it was affecting, it affected all the unconscious things. So speech, sight, swallowing, balance, vision, all those things. So I was, it, it, for a while, I was unable to sit up, unable to swallow, and I would wake up. Uh, choking on my own saliva, and Sherry would run over and roll me onto my side, and I would, you know, sort of drool into a cup. It was lovely, I, I assure you. So I sort of knew, I never lost consciousness, I knew what was going on all the time, but I also was out of it and, and in denial. And there was one morning, I remember w- sort of waking up and looking around and saying, how long have I been here? And Sherry said, well, we've been here, you know, seven days. I said, we? I go, when, when did you get here? And she says, well, I've been here the whole time. I go, well, when did you get here today? And she goes, well, I, I've been here since I came with you. And I go, you haven't been home? She says, no. And I said, where are you sleeping? She says, I'm, I'm sleeping in this chair. And I said, well, what, what, why are you doing that? And she said, because you keep choking, and I have to come over and roll you onto your side. And I said, oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And she goes, you don't have to be sorry. And I go, I go, you didn't sign up for this. And she goes, no, this is exactly what I signed up for, right? And she said, I have never been more certain that I'm doing the right thing than when I'm here right now taking care of you. She goes, this is exactly what I signed up for. And I said, I'm sorry. She goes, you don't have to be sorry. She goes, Mike, this is, this is 
love. This is marriage. This is commitment. This is easy. Now, I do not want to suggest that my wife is perfect. I do not want to suggest that we have a perfect marriage and that we always get these things right, right? But, but it was a, I think, a brilliant moment when there was clarity for us of what marriage looked like, right? For better or worse, in sickness and in health, there we are, right? We, we were, she was going to take care of me. So, <clears throat> when we look to God's Word, high-level flyover, looking at God's Word, we see that the, the focus on relationships is a whole lot more about becoming the right person than it is finding the right person or changing our spouse to become the right person. That, by the way, seldom works. Secondly, we see that marriage is a bigger deal than we often make it, and we undermine it in unintentional ways. But it is a mystical union, and it works best when we go all in. So, some of you are thinking, okay, but that's not what I did, we didn't wait, or we're living together, or I've been divorced four times, or whatever, right? I have not always played the cards in the same way you're suggesting that they should be played. So now what? Well, I want to be really, really clear. There are, uh, <laughs> right, there are do-overs, right? We get second chances. I mean, God is patient. He's telling us to be patient. God is patient. He is gracious. He is loving. He is kind. We get second chances. We get third chances. We get fifth chances. We get, you know, when we realize, okay, what I have done is wrong. And remember, God's not against sin because he's a prude. Sin is ultimately self-destructive behavior, right? We do something that's not ultimately in our own best interest. That's the way this gets laid out. So when we realize, okay, what I've done has been wrong, self-destructive, it's been sinful, it's been selfish, it's I, whatever. Okay, so then we confess, and then we head down the path of trying to do the right thing. I, I want to be clear. Uh, there are consequences for the decisions we made. And some of us dig deep holes that take a long time to get out of. But doing the right thing, being, confessing, owning our mistakes, and then looking to God's counsel to try and move forward is the way forward. God is for you. He is for us. He wants the best for our relationships. It's complicated because of sin in our own heart. But the way forward is the path that he has mapped out for us. Let me pray. Father, we, uh, we marvel that your, uh, you choose to use marriage as a description of your commitment to us. And we confess that we have not uh, always followed a very clear path when it comes to relationships. And that we are selfish and fallen and broken and we're not patient and loving and kind. And we are, can be arrogant, we can be boastful, we can insist on our way, we can do all those things. And we can, we can color outside the lines when it comes to sex. We can just go down a lot of paths that lead to pain. So I want to pray today for hope and encouragement. I want to pray for new starts. I want to pray for fresh starts. I want to pray for grace between married couples. I want to pray for wisdom for singles and for couples living together. I want to pray for a path going forward that uh, is full of 
health and flourishing, even if it's initially full of pain and frustration and heartache. Give hope, give energy, and, and guide and direct us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.